Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast, where we deep dive into the passion projects of the best athletes, entrepreneurs, and executives every week. On today's show, I sit down with Philip Shoemaker, CEO and Executive Director of Identity.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our conversation. Hi, Philip. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nick. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for being on. I guess if you want to, you know, start, just kind of introduce yourself. It can be anything. You know, current role. You know, early days, whatever you want to get started, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. Sounds good. I'll give you the quick long version. How does that sound? So perfect. You know, it's funny. I was I was uh, fortunate enough to be born and raised in the Bay Area, right? Cupertino, California, uh, is my is my birthplace, uh, hometown. And, uh, you know, that's the birthplace of Apple. So I was very uh, fortunate to be there. Of course, I was born to uh, uh, a father who um, was an executive at IBM, right? Uh, at the time, Apple's number one competition. And it was, it was really lucky to be there. Um, you know, my father bought uh, seven shares of IBM stock when I was born. I was fortunate enough to sell them when I turned 16 and I bought an Apple II. And when he saw that, he made me return it and get an IBM PC. <laughs> but I tell you, it was the best thing I'd ever done because, uh, you know, it really got me indoctrinated into coding, into programming at an early age. And I was just fired up. I was fired up about the whole industry. So I've been at a lot of startups. You know, my very first company while I was going to college was Symantec when it was a startup. I was very lucky to be there. And I bounced from small company to small company for quite some time. And then, uh, you know, in 2009, I uh, I left the startup to join Apple uh, to run the App Store and, and help build it out because it it had uh, had a small team and they needed a lot of help to be able to review all the apps and get the App Store built up. So I did that for about seven years until I got the uh, review times down to one day, at which point I quit uh, because it was the most painful position I've ever had in my life with death threats and people stalking me. So, uh, so I quit, went kiteboarding for a year in the Dominican Republic and decided to jump headfirst into blockchain. And the key thing I wanted to focus on was identity because of all the issues I had seen with it in the past, the love I have of the internet, the anonymity of the internet, but at the same time, the downfalls of the anonymity of the internet, um, really concerned me. And these are things that I, I really wanted to repair. So, uh, so that's what I'm doing now as CEO and executive director of identity.com. We're focusing on giving low-cost, decentralized digital identities to people to allow them to have full ownership and control of their IDs. Awesome! That's a lot. That's a great. Uh, that's a great outline. I think for our, <laughs> for our for our conversation. It's funny. I when I I moved uh, from England to the U.S. when I was eight, and we moved to Cupertino, and I didn't Did realize really? at the time. Like, I just remember there was this little area of almost like strip mall type offices with with Apple logos, and yeah. it was just like. I didn't have any context of what it was. I just knew right around the corner, there's all these little Apple buildings. And I'd probably tell my parents, like, that's cool. You know, I was more fascinated by the donut den, right? But that was the, <laughs> it was... Uh, Love that place. It's just so, it's just so weird to, you know, as I got older, I realized, oh, wow, we were like, that was like, that was ground central for this, for this, for this was a really, you know, incredible 
incredible company that was going to come along. So, but before that, you started. Um, you know, you got that first. You got that first PC. Uh, you started coding. What was it that made you want to code initially? I mean, I I looked at computers when I was a kid and thought I don't know what to do with these things, and I'm not sure that there's anything I want to do with them. So, what what made you? Yeah, yeah. There were that? really two things, right? First of all, I have this. I want to solve problems. I always have since I was little, and I like solving problems. And one of the things that I, I had two issues with it is one, getting software was difficult, right? I was 16, having to get a piece of software meant uh, taking the bus down to uh, to computer land or business land to buy a hard, you know, a, an actual packaged piece of software. And uh, two, it was expensive, right? We're looking at $400, $500 for a video game, um, like Zork. Zork was $199. So it's some stupid uh, text-based video game that I loved, by the way. Uh, I wouldn't have called it stupid back then. But for me to see that now, I mean, it was just ridiculously expensive to do that. And three, there just wasn't good variety. You know, getting, getting a piece of software uh, produced, you know, you have to go through the Golden Master and ultimately put it on a, a hardware onto it. You know, this was before... Uh, these were a package of of, uh, of um, floppy disks. You had to get like a package of floppy disks to to get a game. It was really a complicated uh, process to get a video game created. So I wanted to create my own. That was exactly why video games. Nice. Yeah, I remember being a kid and sitting at my friend James's house, and I think his dad had built a computer. And I think he had built a computer, and he had told James like. You know, I want you to learn how to do this, that, and the other. And we would sit there, and I'd be like, "This just seems like so much work for some." It is once you got over the initial, "Wow, this is amazing," then it was like, "Okay, this whole process is amazing, but this this is a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of energy." And so I think it's I was fascinated by the uh, the people that saw that and didn't think, "Oh, wow, what a what a long process." They thought, "Wow, look at the potential once this speeds up and once we get there," because I think it's you know it's whether it's a you know, an, an entrepreneur or or anyone entering any field, it's it's always weird, not weird. It's always uh, fascinating in hindsight to look back at like the ones that saw the potential. You know, they saw the potential that others didn't, or it stoked their passion. Right. They wanted to dive in. They they understood that things would get better, and and they just had to had to do it. So I always think that's that's exciting. So so from college into a startup, right? Symantec, you said. And that's right. I, what uh, was the, I, yeah. I joined Symantec. It was interesting. You know, I, uh, <clears throat> I was living at my, ha- at my dad's house and uh, he had one of those rules that while you go to college and you're living at the house, you got to have a job. And look, I, I was working at a bank as a teller and, uh, you know, dealing with customers is it's not something I was interested in doing as a little 18 year old kid. I, uh, I hated dealing with people. I, I wanted to be behind the a computer typing. And so, um, so I quit that job one day and, and scratched my head and said, oh, man, I need a job. My dad's going to kill me. And uh, I tracked down a, a six-month job at Symantec, a contract job. I interviewed with them, literally uh, interviewed with the VP of R&D who was wearing shorts and a T-shirt. I was in a suit. Um, and he, uh, he offered me the job on the spot. It was six months, but ultimately became seven years of my life. But, uh, but I was brought in as a printer engineer. Now, at the time, everybody had to write their own printer drivers, each piece of software. And so what I had to do was make sure that all the codes were accurate, that, uh, that, that the printers worked properly. And uh, it, was, it was a silly, it, to me, it was one of these jobs that uh, I had to drive to, uh, 
to dealers, computer dealers to, to test their printers. That's how I was told the job worked. And first thing I said is like, this is ridiculous. What I need to do is call these printer makers and have them ship me all their printers. And within about a month, they shipped me uh, printers. I had to get a, a, a lab to house my 250 printers that I got in about the course of two weeks. And uh, <laughs> here I am with the largest office in the company as an 18-year-old kid uh, programming wow. was, just, was just fascinating. No, that's awesome. It's funny that the, uh, when you referenced, the, you know, you were in a suit and, and the shorts and t-shirts, because I always think people say, you know, as that transition was happening, right, there was this battle of like suits versus t-shirts and shorts or shorts and t-shirts. I don't know why it sounds so weird backwards. And then there was, um, and there's this perception of like, what's the big deal about that, right? For me, I remember, right. you know, going through a fundraising process, wearing a suit and then finally just saying, fuck it. And at the end, just, or sorry, just saying, I don't know if we have if we're allowed to swear, <laughs> just like screw it. And it's like, I, I wore, um, you know, just shorts and a t-shirt to, to the final, the final pitch and it went much better. And I always thought, you know, what that change did, at least in my mind, was it, it allowed people to be themselves because I always, I didn't real I always thought when I put that suit on, I'm an imposter. I'm, I'm yeah. trying to present an image that's not accurate. I wouldn't wear this normally. Now there's people that, you know, are super comfortable in, in a suit and they, that comes across, that comes across as them Hey, I'm comfortable and this is me. But I think that that was the, that was really the important part about that was just telling people, hey, it's not about what you're wearing. It's about what you're going to do, who you are. And, and that was a really, uh, I think a really underrated shift in, in the workplace. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, my, as I said, my father was an IBMer and, you know, IBMers were always known for three-piece suits. And that's, so that's what I thought work was when I was young. It's a, it meant you put on this uncomfortable three-piece suit. My father looked comfortable in it, but look, if you've ever worn a suit, you know how uncomfortable, at least for me, I am so uncomfortable in that. Um, yeah. Always messing with my tie. I swear it's choking off some oxygen. Um, there's always something going on. And so for me, when I interviewed at Symantec, I figured, oh, this is what I have to do. I have to wear a suit because I did actually have to wear a suit when I worked at the bank. And so going into that workplace and the VP uh, being in shorts and a t-shirt, he, he looked at me and he laughed. He's like, you're a bit overdressed. And it was just, and this was, you know, this was uh, early on. And uh, and you're absolutely right. I could never be my true authentic self in a suit. Never. Yeah. It's just Which not me. Eventually with identity.com, it's like, it's it's just stripping it down to who are you, right? And taking the, taking the suit off was part of that. So that's right. Jumping straight into startups. And you mentioned from Symantec, um, you went to a few different ones before going to Apple. How do you think that kind of, laid a foundation for your thought process throughout your career of like going, being exposed to startups initially before a larger? Yeah, you know, I, it, it is an interesting question. It's, it's one of the things that I realized early on at Symantec is that it was easy to get to the head of the company, right? If I needed to talk to Gordon, who's the CEO of Symantec at the time, it was literally 15 paces from my office and I could go to the, the head decision maker of the company and uh, pitch my idea. And that to me made all the difference in the world because when I ultimately, you know, when I was working at Symantec and I had to call companies like IBM to get them to loan me a printer or, or send me a printer, it took about four days, right? literally four days of calls and callbacks and calls and callbacks to ultimately get to a decision maker that could just decide to send me a $300 printer. Right? For, yeah. for, for a good business purpose. And I found that early on in Symantec when I went to a company like Borland or, uh, and then I ultimately went to at one point Sun Microsystems, I just found life was so different in those companies. Getting to the head decision maker was an ordeal. 
And, uh, and that to me was, was some of the biggest thing. We could not turn on a dime. We, uh, it, it took, it was like steering a boat, right? It took a long time to get turned around versus, uh, uh, you know, turning my bicycle. I can do that really quickly. And that's what I love about startups is that we can pivot as quickly as we need to. Now, I'm not a huge fan of pivoting, uh, one for pivoting sake, but two, pivoting completely out of your comfort zone because, you know, you have to have some sort of uh, a semblance of, of sanity there of, of keeping you aligned. For us, identity, we're always going to be focused on identity. I'm not going to go into something completely unrelated to it, but there are pivots we can do like pivoting in out of full document verification onto something more like pseudonymity and reputation or just natural changes to, to a, a, uh, to a company like ours and, and natural changes to a business. So for me, the uh, being at a startup meant being able to pivot quickly and keep a really close eye on my cash, right? Making sure that we were not overspending. You know, pivoting is funny because, you know, you need to pivot in order to avoid an obstacle, if you think of it literally. But it's also the first the first movement in spinning in circles. So it's like, a, that's true. you know, it's really hard to, <laughs> it's really hard to, to get that right. So what made you, um what made you join Apple at, from startups and, and, you know, and take that, kind of a, a little more, a larger company? Well, one, one of the themes in my, in my uh, you know, once I got my feet into the industry, one of the themes was mobile computing, right? I really, I saw the future as mobile. I figured we'd ultimately be carrying a computer in our hand. So I went to mobile companies um, a lot. And so Palm Computing was one of them. You know, I, I was, uh, that was one of the startups I was at working on the Palm Pilot I love that, but I always I also like to do the picks and shovels in those. So when I went to join Palm, I didn't join as a software engineer on or a hardware engineer on the actual device. I wanted to create the tools for people to be able to build marketplaces and build apps to uh, uh, to make the Palm Pilot more interesting, right? Because uh, you can't these machines can't live on just what you ship alone. You got to have an external. Uh, a developer ecosystem. And so I was big on building that when I was at Palm. And so I went from, from uh, startup to startup that were focused mo- mo- mostly on mobile computing. And there was a point when I went to Virgin Electronics uh, to work on uh, the iPod killer, right? That's what they called it. It was uh, uh, something Richard Branson spun up to, to destroy the iPod. And uh, I did that for about a year. Uh, they destroyed us. It wasn't <laughs> reverse. And then I went to Real Networks to work on the iPod Killer because uh, Real Networks was really disappointed that they let Tony Fidel go um, to Apple to uh, build the iPod because they had first dibs at it and didn't see the didn't see the vision. And so I went to Real Networks to build that, and uh, I ultimately got pulled away when I realized that you know nobody was going to destroy Apple and the iPod in the music space. Apple had bigger plans, and so I got pulled away to go to a um, a. Uh, uh, an AI startup company called Numenta. And Numenta was founded by the founders that, that founded Palm, uh, Jeff and Donna. And uh, Jeff had always done neuroscience. But while I was there, I worked there for about almost four years. While I was there, the, the, the uh, iPhone came out. Now, I'm at a company that's, uh, that uh, the chairman of the board of Palm was my CEO right at Numenta. And so nobody wanted to carry an iPhone in the office, but we all had them. All the engineers had them and we would secretly look at them on the side. And it was, to me, one of the most interesting paradigm shifts I've seen in computing in a long time. And so I was very enamored of the, of the, uh, of the iPhone that when they ultimately shipped an SDK, I, uh, I quit Numenta to work on apps and just started working on 
and some really terrible apps, right? My son and I were just goofing off. You know, I didn't really need to work. I, uh, I, I'd been pretty successful in the past. So I had a blast just spending time writing, um, writing code for the Palm Pie, I mean, for the, uh, for the iPhone. But the problem was every time I'd submit an app, I'd get this most ludicrous message in response, legalese, a legal contract sent back to me s- saying such harsh things like, uh, if I pursue this route, you could get sued by Apple. And you're like, what is going on? I'm submitting an app. <laughs> and, and at the time it was just, the just ridiculous apps. Uh, uh, you're using an API improperly. You get a uh, you get a really stern letter from from Apple. So, I, uh, I I started writing a lot of letters back. Right, started sending a bunch of emails back saying, "Look, you're doing this all wrong. I don't know why you're reviewing apps this way." And it got so I guess I got so loud that Eddie Q at Apple reached out to me and said, "Hey, we need to talk." And uh, I had to sit down with him at Infinite Loop One, IO One. We sat in the lobby, had a good hour-long conversation. He says, "You should come on board and and uh, build this team to uh, to uh, streamline the process, optimize the process, and make the App Store a better place." Uh, you got a lot of good ideas, and then that started my four months of interviewing at Apple. Uh, Apple's a company I'd always wanted to go to, but I just never found uh, my sweet spot there. And uh, and and heading up the App Store seemed like a, it could be it, but you know, I wasn't a shoe in. It took four months. Uh, interviews with Steve and Phil and all these other execs at the company was a was a harrowing experience on occasion. But uh, but it just really got me fired up for the future of the iPhone and uh, what we could ultimately build with the App Store. And what did you what at the time? Um, I mean, I know the people recently been talking about you know the let's not forget it wasn't that long ago that the most popular app was the was the pour a beer app. Like what <laughs> what did you see at the time? What did you think? I mean, did you think it would be this? I was just say controlling or or necessary, but like we we use it for everything. Did you right. did you see it at the time that was going to happen, or was it you know a little bit less than that? Or it you know for me it was it, this was two thousand eight two thousand nine. We were in a recession. I had a lot of friends that got laid off from from big tech companies in the Bay Area, and so for me looking at the the App Store as a secondary or tertiary way for people to make money, right? You, you could have your your day job or be able to have a side gig. To me, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in the gig economy and have been for a long time. And this was kind of the early days for me thinking about, hey, this is a great way for a developer to write some code. Because in the past, how could a developer make more money? You know, if they were working at a, a full-time at a, at a company like IBM, they really couldn't. It was really difficult to uh, to create shrink wrap software. Web development was still in 2008 was still pretty early. I mean, as obviously, as you know, um, the tools for like incorporating visas and, and, and MasterCard was just difficult to do. PayPal was not super streamlined to do that, especially on a mobile device. So I saw this as such a great way for de- developers to start making money again and being able to have a side gig to be able to put out some app and have some uh, uh, have some uh, secondary income coming in to, to help them out. And so for me, the first way I saw it is, this is a great way for developers to make money. This could help get some of them uh, uh, off of their, uh, um, uh, out of the, uh, the depression of being laid off from big tech company. Let's start working on apps. And this was kind of a dream I had when I was at Palm as well, at, 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 on the Palm Pilot. I wanted there to be a store specifically for developers to be able to submit that. But Apple made it so easy to do that I just, uh, that's what I saw at first. But I tell you, in my first few weeks there, as the volumes, right, in, in March 2009, 
volumes, uh, um, when I was interviewing in January, volumes were about uh, uh, 750 to 1,000 apps per week being submitted, which was a good number. When I got there in March, it started a it, hockey stick that was up to 25,000 per week. 25,000 apps per week being submitted for, uh, for the team to look at. I knew at that point that there was going to be an app for that, right? That old saying, there's going to be an app for everything you wanted to do, which I was a huge believer in, right? I was a huge believer in having 8,000 apps on your phone to control every aspect of your life. Now, my opinion has since changed on that because I don't think we need that many, but there, I saw this future of there being an app for everything you need to do in life. And it was at that point that I realized just how groundbreaking and, and what we were doing, along with Google Play, of course, but this direction was just going to be a game changer for the world. What do you think it was that made Apple, I guess, I don't know if it's culturally or just what made them embrace that model um, where maybe Palm Palm didn't? Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question because, you know, one of the things, it, it, Steve wasn't on board, right? Steve was absolutely not on board with doing an app store. He, uh, you know, he's he was a... Uh, outspoken proponent of things like Flash, because Flash he saw was the number one reason that apps that that Macs crashed. Right, somebody was running Macromedia Flash at the time on something, and it would make your Mac crash. He had a lot of data that backed that up, and so he saw the idea of the App Store as as something that would ruin his his amazing iPhone, right, his precious device. This would just bog it down, and uh, so for longest time. There was not a, uh, there, Apple was really against doing that. It was much the same reason Palm was as well, because once you started proving it, and, you know, the second one is liability, right? Once you started putting these apps on a phone, you have to, especially if it's going into your store, you're putting your stamp of approval on them. And so if you're putting your stamp of approval on a fart app, then you're saying, hey, I, I love fart apps, right? If you put it on a gaydar, then you're like, I think this is funny that uh, you're pretending to be able to identify people who are gay. And, and then it, it gets worse than that, right? If, if you approve an app that has uh, some uh, sermons in it that says it's the gay cure, then you're starting to say, yes, we think homosexuality is, some, or homosexuality is something you can cure. And it's just a steep decline, right? I mean, it's a very slippery slope there. So those are some of the things that nobody really wanted to touch. Uh, be it Palm, be it Google, be it Apple. Nobody wanted to touch that because of those those reasons. And you know how developers are, Nick, right? Um, you got a lot of developers just trying to create some cool things. And then you've got those that just are in it for a money grab or they're in it for uh, for shock and awe, right? And which also might include a money grab. And f- so f- those, were, uh, uh, those were the ones that we were really worried about. But look, I think ultimately... Uh, it had to do with people like Scott Forstall, the VP of engineering at, at Apple, that really convinced Steve that, look, there are things we can do to protect the OS. It's sandboxed. Uh, people can only read and write from their own section of it. Uh, we have great memory management. Um, there were a lot of things that they were ultimately to be able to show. This is why it's different than the Mac. And this is why the OS will be able to handle uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of these issues. And, uh, and, and largely proven, proven accurate. But the key was to get a review team in there that could start reviewing apps for these things that were technical, right? Technical is the easy stuff, right? Making sure that it's not overtaxing the CPU, et cetera. And then there's uh, the, the moral ethical stuff on like the gay cure. Is that something we should allow into the store at all? And those were the things that 
uh, I think ultimately we agree, as Steve agreed to, uh, to create an app store, but he really wanted to control these things like objectionable content, pornography, um, everything along those lines, hate speech. And, uh, and that's where you start getting in, into this, uh, uh, bogged down in the in the ethics and the morals of what we should be policing for in the app store, and that that was you know by and large the uh, majority of my job is trying to figure out what was allowed and what wasn't allowed ultimately and culturally because things change right. But yeah. for for us, um, things are different in the UK and in Germany. Look, nudity is perfectly fine, right? You want to put a little nudity on your magazine, do that. In Cupertino, not so much, right? <laughs> we don't see a lot of that in the US. Um, for a for a four plus app, right? If you're if ages four and above, you can grab a, a newspaper off the off the shelf in the, in the UK and see nudity. You can't do that here in the states. And so this was a fine line we had to juggle and balance. And how did you? So there's there's two. Um, you know, in addition to that, you've got you've got like this app submitted going from I think you said 750 to 1,000 a week to 25,000 a week, very very quickly. Um, so I guess one question is, how did you? How did you deal with that? Like, what's the, you know, a lot of people would be, they'd wish for that. And then when it happens, they'd just put a stop to everything because they, they can't handle it or they would, maybe it's the lesson is in patience, right? That realizing a lot of startups think, oh my God, if we don't get this perfect, we, we've, we've, we've wasted all that. And then two, with policies constantly evolving and you've just, you've just approved someone, you know, a month before, a week before, and now the policies have changed and there's something that's, you know, been brought to your attention that you hadn't thought of previously that, that outreach to people, and then as it gets bigger, and you realize, huh, these aren't just developers, um, you know, earning some extra income. These are companies being built on this, and so now we have the ability to, or the responsibility—I don't know what the right word is—to we're just we're just our decisions are affecting the fate of a company with multiple employees, et cetera, et cetera. How did you how did you deal with all those issues of such rapid growth and in, in such a kind of frontier? industry. Yeah, I look, it's fascinating you hit on that because that you know, that was the, the the most difficult thing was the uh was the, the handling of, of consistency and then ultimately and as policies change, right? But but initially just the massive growth, right? One of the things like like you said, we weren't trying to get everything right initially, right? Ideally the way you do it is you come out with a set of guidelines and you tell developers specifically what is and what isn't allowed. You know, we took the other approach. We weren't going to tell developers what was allowed and what wasn't allowed because we didn't really know, right? We were figuring this out as we were going, you know, the whole, we'll know it when we see it type of approach. And it was difficult and made developers really, really hate us. And it made review times long, right? Early days, you'd submit an app and three weeks later, it might get approved, right? It might get rejected three weeks later, right? Which is even worse because then you have to make the changes and submit. And so for me, my job was to streamline all of that. First of all, I had to uh, I had to 10x the team as quickly as possible, and uh, and I did that largely by pilfering requisitions from other orgs within the uh, within the company, which made me uh, persona non grata to many of the directors in the company because I was basically given a blank check to to help build out this team because this, we saw this as super critical, and so uh, uh, so that's what I started doing. And then I got this blanket uh, agreement with from the Apple stores that I could start stealing their geniuses, right? These are people that know the Apple brand. They're somewhat technically savvy. We don't have to look at code or anything like that because you don't get code when you submit an app to the App Store, right? You don't submit your code. You just commit the, submit the binary. So then it was just a matter of training people on how to use the tools, 
but more importantly, what is and isn't allowed, you know, what our internal guidelines were. And that's the thing you kind of hit on, which was the bane of our existence the entire time. It still is, right? Because we have a team, uh, the team now is over 400 people, uh, 400 reviewers that are reviewing these apps all within Cupertino for the most part and, and Sunnyvale and surrounding areas. But the, uh, the, how do you train them, right? First of all, you can't get them all in a room at once to train. Meanwhile, you, you also need people on the floor reviewing apps while you're training. Uh, so we had a lot of issues like that. I had to build ultimately an L&D team, a learning and, and uh, a development team, uh, a learning development team uh, and documentation team to ultimately build out documentation, build out recurring uh, training um, and, uh, and we had to put people through refreshers every month, right? It, it ultimately came down to that in the early days we were training people. I'd pull them into a room and I would say, okay, here's the latest ruling from the executives, right? Another piece of this was I, I was the ultimate, um, uh, at ultimately at ultimate decision maker for the app store, but there were things I couldn't make a decision on, right? So I bring those to the executives and that was every Friday, I'd have a three-hour meeting with all the top executives at Apple. Sometimes Steve was there. I mean, imagine a three-hour meeting with all the top brass at the company, how much that meeting must have cost on a minute-per-minute basis. But it was important for us to be able to put out these apps and say, look, these developers have submitted this. They submitted it two weeks ago. They need a decision on this. And some of the early ones were just like copies of our apps. Do we want other mail apps? Do we want other web browsers on the app? Do we want voice over IP on, on, on the phone, right? Are these things that we allow? Because it looks like companies, Facebook, Google, et cetera, want to take over the iPhone and make it the Google phone or the, or the Facebook phone. And so that was a big concern in the early days is these competing apps. Ultimately, Sanity won on that. And we're like, yes, of course we want those in there because this is this is competition that'll help us make our own apps better. Another Scott Forstallism. And for me, that was super powerful. But the ones that really hurt, as you said, were the ones that uh, companies that built up uh, or, or people that built companies around this hired 40, 50, 60 people. And then I had to come along one day and said, you know what? The executives have had a change of heart. We've decided we don't want the big ones were app recommendation apps, right? If, if you think about it, there, for a long time, there was a glut of these apps that say, we're, we're uh, an app that's going to show you the top 10 or the top 100 best apps in the app store. Now, first of all, we had charts to do that. We had best sales, et cetera. We thought that the only people that should be driving business towards uh, to, to Apple's uh, charts was Apple, right? We shouldn't have these third parties making up their own charts. But hey, we put that aside. We let these apps go into the store. And ultimately, we found that there was a lot of pay to play, that if they wanted to be at the top of this list, they'd have to pay some guy 10 grand. And now this terrible app is at the top of this list and it's driving incredible download volume, but then horrible reviews, right? And so those are the kind of things that we started seeing. But I had friends that built these companies, one out of France who built a, a team of, of over 70 people. And I had to call them one day and tell them that, you know, we have a change of heart. App recommendation apps are just not allowed anymore. And his, you know, I saw him, uh, he flew to Cupertino to meet with me and just said, look, I have a team of 70 people in France, which is hard to lay people off in France. And he said, what, what am I going to do? How am I supposed to build a business? Let me figure out what nuance I can do to, to keep the business. Now, I was able to give him some nuances and, and, and help work through some things but it wasn't big enough to sustain his business. And he ultimately within a year was out of business. And uh, those are the things that were so painful and, and things you have to juggle constantly. But look, Apple still does it, 
right? With policies regarding uh, payments, uh, you know, Apple has now gone full force into services as well, which competes directly with the Spotify's and the Netflix's of the world, which are painful for those developers, right? I, I'll tell you in the early days, the, uh, uh, the, the um, discussions I'd have with CEOs of those companies trying to explain why we were changing the policies and, uh, you know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not something they wanted to hear. Yeah. I, think, I think it's interesting one. The second reference in there of like um, a lot of people see these big companies as unapproachable or what's the point, right? But you were just telling them, hey, this this process sucks. I think it can make it better. And that led to obviously a great opportunity. Then And then you have someone in, in France who's saying, hey, you know, this is putting my business in jeopardy and at least is able to to get out there um, for a meeting. As the, as the ultimate uh, decision maker, you know, on the majority of things related to the App Store, is there one decision that like you still just think about that you... you you got wrong and and on and how you had to you know adapt to that or or something you wish oh. you immediately could have changed well there's so many right there there are so many ones that that you know with, with in the first three weeks of my job uh someone approved a, a, my team three people on my team approved an app called baby shaker that uh that it was just a, a literally a, a crude drawing of a baby on the screen and it would cry and you were supposed to gently sway the phone is using an accelerometer. It was a cool, cool uh, uh, use of the technology. You gently sway the phone, use the accelerometer, and the baby would stop crying. Yeah. But if you shook the phone hard, the baby would get X's over the eyes and the baby would die. Right. And that was something my team approved. Three sets of eyes saw that app and they approved it. And uh, literally the day after record earnings and record announcements from Apple, uh, we had people picketing in front of uh, Infinite Loop. Uh, we had our stock went down and uh, I got a lot of calls. I fielded calls from Steve, from Al Gore and other members of the board who just wanted to yell at me about approving this app. And, uh, you know, I didn't see the app. I probably, you know, I, I probably would not have approved it because I've always had the belief that we shouldn't approve things that kill babies or, or furry little animals, right? And things that, that are cute, you don't want to kill, right? People just don't, don't, we don't want that in the store. And, uh, and so those kind of things were, were made. And there were a lot of things like that that happened over time. I, I'll tell you the biggest one, um, and it's a silly one. It didn't make a lot of press, but we had a developer submit an app. And uh, when, you, when you downloaded the app, you, uh, or, or when you ran the app for the first time, you entered your shipping details. And within a week, you'd get a box with a, with a cockroach in it, a live cockroach, and some um, um, components. And then it gave you instructions on how to insert these wires from the components directly into the cockroach's skull. And then it, it, it sticky taped on the back of the cockroach. And then you could use this app to make the cockroach go left, 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 right, 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 forward, backwards, right? And that worked for a few hours. Huh. And then neuroplasticity, right? The cockroach would rewire its brain and then it'd be gone with your CP, with your chips in <laughs> seconds. And... Um, and that was one of those that I saw and I immediately said, there is no way we're going to approve this app. Because for me, this was something that was just, uh, look, uh, cockroach aside, it's still a, a living creature and we should not be modifying it. And plus it's a slippery slope. Hey, if I can do that to a cockroach, why can't I do that to a dog or a child? And so you start wondering um, if, if you can, you know, if this would be a, a dangerous slippery slope. And so I said, no to that app. And I got, um, I got chewed out the next executive review board because they were like, this is science. 
this is advancing science. We need to approve the app. And I said, look, if we approve this app, PETA will be picketing. And I'll never forget this. So a senior executive told me that cockroaches aren't, aren't animals. They're not warm-blooded. And I, I scratched my head. It's like, well, that's a mammal. That's different. Cockroaches are definitely animals. But look, I lost that battle. Uh, we put the app onto the store. PETA picketed. We pulled it off the store. To me, that was I did my best to stand by my guns on that one because I was so offended by just the the idea behind this app. But granted, it's a cockroach. They're disgusting, right? I'm not a fan. But at the same time, it's an animal. I don't want to I don't want to be in that business. So things like that that were um that were just really ridiculous. And look, that that thing I said earlier about the gay cure, yes, my team allowed that app onto the store. And uh and then when when the press pointed it out to us, you know, like, right. There was a time when I saw every single app that went into the store. I had to be the final that first year. I had to uh, uh, press the button to put them onto the store. Um, but after that, I started open. I opened it up to the entire team because it's optimization, right? We had to ultimately optimize the process, and we allowed them to approve apps. And by doing that, you get apps that are that are just uh, kind of terrible. <laughs> and so, yeah. so that was an app I ultimately have to pull off the store. Uh, and it was embarrassing, right. To allow that app into the store in the first place, because it was such a, such a terrible concept in my, in my opinion. What advice would you give people? Um, as far as like, you know, you, you reach a point where you have to delegate, you have to trust, you have to give people responsibility, both for scale and both for, to keep them engaged and, and, and feeling empowered. Like what piece of advice would you give to a company or executive that's just kind of hitting that point where they're not going to go any farther unless they really start empowering people. But, you know. Yeah. I, look, mistakes are going to happen. I, I think that's one of the things. You know, I, I say I'm embarrassed about these apps hitting the store. But look, it was a, a standard. It's, it's part of a learning process, right? People had to learn and ultimately make mistakes to learn from it. I, as I, Nick, as I'm sure you know, as being an entrepreneur, right? We make a lot of mistakes and we shouldn't hide from those mistakes. We should embrace them and say, this is what I did. This is why I did it. I thought it was the right decision at the time. Clearly it wasn't. I would do things differently. But for me, I shouldn't be embarrassed by the mistakes that we made. It should help you uh, uh, change your future, right? Be able to, to make different decisions in the future. But I'll tell you, the problem was that we were under a microscope, both internally and externally. Uh, Jaws from, from Apple used to say that I had the hardest job at Apple because Either way, I get yelled at internally or externally, right? Maybe it was the press taking me apart, or maybe it was one of the executives yelling at me. But it was one of those things that regardless of what we did, we'd make mistakes. And if you made mistakes, you get yelled at. I just think executives, I think people who are, are founders, et cetera, just need to understand that mistakes will be made by themselves, by their employees. And as long as those mistakes don't keep happening, as long as you adapt and learn from them, that's all that matters. And so for me, look, you got to listen. And you got to learn, and uh, and mistakes are, are can be part of both of those, right? You didn't listen properly, so you made a mistake, or you didn't uh, learn from your mistakes. And so, for me, I uh, I believe that that mistakes are just necessary part of of running a business. It's going to happen, and just get used to it, and uh, and don't blow it out of proportion. Yeah, I think that's great advice. The um, so you, so we move on to identity.com, which I got to admit. Um, it, was, it was a little bit intimidating when I was when I was on the website. I'm like, this might be this might be a little bit over my head. But the um, you know, if you look back, you had uh, had death threats and, and and kind of that. You'd you'd had you'd went kiteboarding to just kind of get away from that. Um, even I think one of the early experiences at the bank, you said, you know, 
and I love dealing with these customers. So I can understand now this, the idea of this kind of like uh, on the blockchain approach to identity um, would be would would be would be appealing on a uh, on some level. But I guess if you can can kind of bring bring the listeners and myself up to speed on you know what's the what's the problem trying to solve and and how going about it and and uh, and why it's really important for for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I apologize for our website being so complicated. I'm right there with you, right? We're going through a major website overhaul right now because I found you know, this kind of boilerplate placeholder content. We put a lot of, of, uh, of nerd speak on it to make life uh, uh, or, or to make it look a lot better. And so, um, so that's all going through an overhaul. Things will be much more uh, easily readable in the next few weeks when we roll out the new website. So I apologize for that confusion there, <laughs> but um yeah, you know, one of the things that that happened to me a lot at Apple when I was reviewing apps, when we were looking at apps, was that we would get something that had uh, forbidden content in it, something that was bad, might be uh, pornography or, or, or whatever was disallowed, and uh, Easter eggs that unlocked functionality. And those are kind of things that we call terminable offenses, right? They were things that you would get terminated from the iOS developer program for one year, at which point you can come back after a year. And so we would terminate developers and they'd come back in a matter of minutes, um, especially if they were overseas, right? They could, they could fake their name. They could fake because honestly, to get into the app store, not as a business, right? As just as a, as an individual, you need an email address and a valid credit card. And that's it. Right? So you can put in whatever name you want. You can be entirely uh, 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 anonymous and you can get in the store. So, so identity on the internet was just always one of these banes of my existence. Like, like I said earlier, I love anonymity. I love, that's one of the great things about the internet. You can go on a Reddit under a pseudonym, um, but you can ultimately speak your mind. And I love that about it. I, you could surf websites without people really knowing exactly who you are. Sure, cookies and other things uh, uh, as, as well. But overall, you, you can do things on the internet that just people don't uh, don't have to see. And to me, the anonymity was 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 key. But at the same time, at the App Store, I learned very painfully that developers can hide behind that anonymity and put terrible stuff into the and and honestly, for me, it, it was less about the content because we would catch it. It's more about wasting our time because they'd, they'd submit a new app under a different name, under a different name, under a different name. And I'd have to have a different reviewer reviewing these things that they will never approve. And so it's just wasting our time. And so for me, it was an optimization process. But I walked away from that uh, when I left Apple just saying, wow, identity needs to be solved. Now I had death threats um, out of Brazil, out of Australia, to the point that I couldn't travel to those countries because they were credible enough. And I had people waiting for me with a picture of me at, at Infinite Loop, just waiting outside by cart, by the parking lot in the night, hoping to have a conversation with me. Um, people tailgating into Apple, you know, badges to, to be able to, um, to find me again with a picture of me. And so this just, and then I got sim swapped when I was in the Dominican Republic, uh, um, kite surfing. And so for me, I was just like, we need to solve this problem. I don't know how to solve the problem, but let me start digging into it. And that's when I learned about technologies or, or concepts such as self-sovereign identity. The, the idea that you own your identity. Now, granted, you, you know, you and I are both in the States. The U.S. government really owns our identity. But, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean we can't be in control of it. We can't be in control of disclosure of that. The, um, the old thing that, that people used to say about 
going to like my daughter's 18 when she goes to college and she goes to her first club, she has to pull out her ID and show this complete stranger everything about her life, right? Where she lives, her real birthday, her real name. I mean, isn't that invasive enough, especially if they take a picture of it? Okay, now they're going to do identity theft. And, and to me, that's just, I don't understand why we haven't used technology to solve this problem. Uh, another thing is, look, look at the, the vaping wars, right? The, the jewel and other things that underage kids are, 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 uh, are vaping cotton candy flavored tobacco. And look, I understand that when it was physical, a physical good, like, like a pack of cigarettes, you, you can't, there's no technology there. But with a jewel, there's absolutely technology. It could connect your phone to determine if you're of age and then allow you to vape or not. Um, there's technologies that can solve these problems. And this is the kind of stuff in, in, uh, in 2016, 2017, when I was in the DR that I started talking to all my blockchain friends about, um, trying to figure out if this is something that could be safe, could be solved through the blockchain. And, uh, and ultimately determined that using self-sovereign identity, putting things on and off chain, you need to have both on and off chain solution to solve a lot of these problems. Not everything needs, you, you don't want everything on chain. So for example, uh, Nick, you, Nick, you, you don't want your, your, your personally identifiable information on chain that can ultimately be, uh, a quantum, um, a quantum computer can ultimately, uh, decipher it all and determine and get, get your social security and all that information, right? You don't, and, and exact transactions and all of that. So we don't want everything on chain, but we do want thing markers on chain to say, yes, this identity is valid. It's been validated by this company or by this person. And, uh, and it was validated on this date, et cetera. So we have this, this kind of cross chain platform, uh, solution that's both on and off chain that uses things called decentralized identifiers, also known as DIDs. And the, 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 uh, objective is, is quite simple. We want to, allow people to use existing solutions, um, identity-based solutions or, or, or identity-based websites, et cetera, to be able to ultimately handle uh, logging in or, or transactions without there being a man in the middle, without anyone tracking what websites you're going to, without any centralized repository of your information. Like if I, if I go to do a transaction on Coinbase, they really don't need to have all my information. I, look, there's the, the financial action task force has this, this thing, uh, that, uh, that needs to, transaction data needs to follow it. But all they really need to have is a customer ID that ultimately resolves to, uh, the full data about me ultimately, right? So we, what, and, and that can be uncovered by the U.S. government, by whatever government ultimately needs it, you know, a, a, some sort of authority. And that's the kind of world we want to create. One where you don't provide all this data with every transaction you do. You, you provide a, an identifier, a customer ID number. It could just be, look, you're at your, your Twitter handle at PBS identity or what, whatever it is. And, and that can be used and that will transfer with the, the thing with, with your transaction. And ultimately, if someone needs that information, they can come to the governing body. Um, in this case, it might be a, a DAO representing identity.com. And they would be able to ultimately uncover that information at that point. So for me, we want to provide a world where you don't need to give away you, all of your data to, uh, to transact on the internet. You just need to give away a little bit. Uh, might just be your ID. And then ultimately, that data can ultimately be uncovered if bad stuff happens. Right. That it's, it's pretty simple. And we create a protocol. We're on the Solana blockchain. We also support Ethereum blockchain. But the idea is we, we work with partner companies like Civic 
or a, a, an identity validation company like Secure that does the validation, and then they step away from it. They don't store any of that PII. Uh, the user stores it on their phone. They keep it on their device. And when they need to transact, or when somebody needs more information from them, they get a message on their phone and they disclose. They control the disclosure of that information. So there's nobody going behind the scenes and pulling it from a database because it, that database doesn't exist. You know, honeypots are one of those things. Uh, honeypots of information are one of those things that I want to just eradicate completely um, off the internet. Because look, how many times have I has my data been breached this year alone? I think I got the sixth one from Marriott just recently. It's just it's nonstop, and uh, we need to we need to prevent this from happening. And decentralized identity and self sovereign identity is is the way to do that. So, as an individual, is there something I need to proactively do, or or am I? Is it something where you know when it, there comes a time my my activity or well, has has already been kind of tracked through? these things? Yeah, it's a good question. We, the idea, the, the ideal scenario is that you don't have to do anything proactively. It just happens, right? When you want to transact with a certain app or a decentralized app or decentralized exchange or, or heck a metaverse, um, they may ultimately ask for you to identify yourself and then you'll be onboarded through a, hopefully a very frictionless process that you ultimately have to prove who you are. Now, proving who you are it is is a variety, there's a variety of ways of doing it. You can scan, do document scanning, where you scan your ID and your passport. Now, that's pretty heavy handed. That is pretty heavy friction. And look, it intimidates people. They're like, yeah, like I'm going to do that to get onto this website. Yeah. But then there's others like a knowledge based authentication, where you can it asks you a bunch of questions. Now there's security risks in all of these things, right? If they they just ask you a bunch of questions, I mean. Just because you know a lot about me doesn't mean you are me. Um, so those are some of the kind of things that uh, uh, that we have to wrestle with. Different people want to go, and, and different companies want to go to different levels, and that's something we support. So the next question is like, based on your experience, and I know you're also doing and you know investing and advising. That whole like, you know, do I build do I build up that consumer demand first, or do I go out and build a network of utility and use cases that then would would drive consumer demand which which of those approaches um, you know do you prefer when you're looking at things and also which one do you think has the best you know there's the most uh, consistent chance of success but also when you look at the big 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 things is there a is there a uh, one side of that that they seem to have nailed first interesting um yeah, you know, when I, I actually have different uh, opinions on whether I'm investing in a company or whether I'm building the company myself, right? So, so like with, with identity, I, I think I need, I, it's not about building demand. I think demand will ultimately come. I'm all about, I need that utility. I need those providers on the back end. I need to start building up all of the infrastructure to make sure I can handle demand when it ultimately comes, because I'm a big believer in that happening. And I'm, you know, it's the chicken and egg issue, right? Uh, and and for me, I uh, I need that egg, right? I need this thing built out first before I can start bringing in those those uh, those chickens, right? Before before I start getting that uh, demand coming on board. But look, when I when I invest in a company, I'm the exact opposite. I, for me, investments. And I'm not talking large dollar investments, you know, they're not huge, but I like taking a, a, I like taking big, deep swings. I look at something and I say, oh my God, there's a lot of demand here. This is really interesting. These guys are going to crush it. And, uh, and for me, I, I, I do it more on something 
technologies I understand, technologies I think are the future. Um, and I've been wrong many times for sure. But when I look at something that, uh, that I think is the future and, and I see the demand growing here, um, I'm not sure they're going to be able to deliver, but I, I'm hoping they will. Those are the kind of things I ultimately invest in. But look, you know, when, when 2016 came around and California ultimately legalized uh, cannabis, I said, I, look, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole because of uh, federal regulatory issues, but I'm into the picks and shovels, so I'll invest heavily in the testing labs because I think it's important to make sure that if this is medicine for people, then let's make sure the medicine is clean. And uh, so I did big investments in that space. I mean, they were terrible investments in hindsight because you can't make money on testing, um, especially when it's not required by certain jurisdictions. And so it was a big learn. And, and I did, I, I did big investments in that space, but I saw this as the future. Now, cannabis, while cannabis is, is huge in California right now, uh, the way they've handled it with taxes, everything, it's just made it worse. It's made the black market take off. Um, it's just really bad idea on, on, on my part, um, in investing in those spaces, especially when it's not like in testing markets, not required. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So blockchain, you know, you, you believed in mobile, right? You thought mobile was the, was the, uh, was the future, even when most people were, a lot of people were just getting comfortable and familiar, um, with desktop. Right. Do you see blockchain as something that's going to replace over time a lot of, a lot of what we're doing, or is it going to enhance it? Yeah, I don't see it as replacing. I, I see it as enhancing. And, uh, and I believe ultimately, you know, we're not going to replace database early on, right? If, if, if you remember, like when blockchain buzz in 2016, 2017, during all the ICOs, people were all saying that blockchains are going to replace databases worldwide. I mean, that's just an insane thought because of how slow blockchains typically are. Uh, we're not going to replace databases. In fact, they shouldn't. Um, but there's certain transactional data that you ultimately want to be completely transparent on. You want to be able to have it out there. Maybe not completely. You don't need PII and stuff up there to say that this wallet is owned by Philip Shoemaker and these are the transactions he's making. That's a bit too much, but at least the transparency of it. It doesn't have to be necessarily financial transactions. This, this is one of the things that like I, w I was, I was thinking about with regulatory compliance. Uh, in, in so many areas, if we can put that on the chain, put that in a way that we can see how uh, these companies are compliant or not compliant and, uh, 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 and keep that transparent, people can start writing tools to be able to monitor these guys, monitor these companies that are doing, uh, that are polluting, that are, uh, are doing pay to play uh, for things like cannabis testing or other things along those lines. I think it's a big enhancement in the world. But it, it's not it's not a one solution fits all, right? This is one of those things that like the supply chain could really use this. I, I, I love the idea of using identity and blockchain and supply chain because when you hear quotes like 80% of the products we purchase off the shelf have some sort of human trafficking slavery involved, at least may not want to buy anything, right? You, you're like, really, there's still slavery and human trafficking going on in the world and that's contributing to the iPhone that I bought or this, this set of cotton sheets because uh, the people picking cotton were slaves. I mean, this is ludicrous and I'd love to be able to fix that. And I think this kind of blockchain technology can help open up markets and make things more transparent. So I see it more as an augmentation and something that will enhance things moving forward. And what lessons do you think there are for blockchain um, the industry, you know, projects and, and, and companies as a whole from 
from the App Store. Because even even just now, when you explained those specific use cases, right, of uh, the jewel or or you know taking a picture of your ID, it 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 just clicked right for me, and it was like, oh, I get it now. I, I totally understand. But when I obviously when I look into more of the technical. Um, you know, verbiage and, and and exactly how it works. It feels a little intimidating and a little and a little confusing. And obviously, the um, you know what goes on behind the scenes um, with an app and and even the process of approval and and all those things is is very complex, very technical. But the user doesn't doesn't know that they're not they're not kind of brought into that process. So there's some obviously, you know, the early adopters are really excited about you know really knowing how. how how all this works and 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 why it's different, but for the mass audience, it's almost like we need to, or not we, but you know, they need to be, it needs to be presented to them in a way. Um, like my first ex- my first experience with with crypto was actually uh, NBA Top Shot, right? Like during yeah. the COVID, I got back into uh, collecting sports cards, and then I heard about Top Shot, and I knew that, you know, on Flow, I knew okay, I, I get it. I'm putting my credit card information in here, and I know that. There's a little window that pops up that says, hold on a second. We're going to now take you this normal transaction, which you're used to. We're going to do some other kind of transaction, you know, which now I know is on the blockchain, but it, it made me aware something's happening, which is different, but we're not going to um, overwhelm you with the complexity. And then, bam, here it is, right? And now it's it sits somewhere. And from there, obviously, I, I was curious and I, and I learned more and it took me more on to, on to you know, learning about ETH and, and, yeah. and that side of things. Um, but how do we find that balance? And, and when do you think it'll happen where the behind-the-scenes stuff isn't as important? Yeah. <laughs> like, Nick, you, you, you nailed the big problem with Web3 in general, right? Web3 is overly complex. And it's not just complex from a development perspective. You know, one of the things that was great about what we did at Apple we, we, was we made it very simple to write a, an app for the App Store. The APIs were, were well-documented. Uh, uh, there were a lot of step-by-step approaches on on how to write apps. And that's why we got a lot of apps. That's why we got a lot of bad apps. But we had a lot of really good apps as well because we made it simple for developers to be able to integrate because it's the developers creating those apps that get them into the customers' faces, right, and get the customers excited about it. And that's why they keep going back to the App Store to download more apps because a developer made it interesting, right, made an interesting app. So one of the first things we need to cater to is let's make it a lot easier to develop for for Web3. Now, what does Web3 mean? Well, there's hundreds of blockchains out there. Which one are you going to support? Each one has a different set of API. Heck, many have different languages, right? Are you programming in Solidity? Are you programming in Rust? You know, there's all these these languages that many of us had never even heard of before we jumped into the space. And so now you have to learn that. Uh, And so right now, it's a really onerous process to be able to even code for uh, for web three but let, let's put that aside right let, let's say these developers are, are are easily creating new apps now i have to connect with a wallet what's a wallet you know users in the in the web three space are getting really confused on on how to authenticate themselves they don't log in with username and passwords anymore they log in with wallets oh but if they're using metamask they have to still log in with a password to be able it's just Overall, a very confusing process. And, and the concept of me logging into a website with a wallet. Now, think about this. It's like going to Target and chucking my wallet through the door and saying, hey, I just want to come in. 
And they have to then rifle through my wallet and say, okay, you can come in now. And they hand it to me. I don't know what they've taken out of my wallet after I've checked it through the door. Right. For me, I, you know, I, my, my wife's at, at Yuga Labs, which, which does Board Ape Yacht Club. And uh, there are issues that, uh, that people connect to websites that they didn't, don't really know. And next thing you know, their ape is gone or their ape coin is gone or the token, some sort of Ethereum is gone because you, you click on these things that are these smart contract addresses, addresses. It doesn't tell you exactly what it's going to do, but you have to trust that you're clicking on this link and it's going to be good. Um, they're not always good. Right? So there is so much bad in the Web3 space that we have to fix. And, um, and I see a lot of money going into the space. I see a lot of excitement. You know, to me, the one interesting thing about the, about the Web3 space, it's kind of spun business. Uh, uh, it kind of has spun it on its ear. Rather than me going out to a company and negotiating a contract with it, I send it with, with that company to integrate our technology. I send engineers to hacker houses. They work with their low-level engineers at that other company. And next thing you know, it's integrated. And we don't have to have that conversation. It's all permissionless. Things just work now. And now I've got new partners. I go to a hacker house. I got three new partners. And it literally works that way. So things are really interesting in that space, making things permissionless, et cetera. But at the same time, you can start uh, easily getting to bed with the wrong companies, start making the uh, uh, bad decisions in that space. But we need to improve the user interface, both from a developer perspective and an end user perspective in order to bring this mainstream. And, and look, it's not right around the corner. I'm, uh, I'm bullish on it. I know it's going to happen. It's just so many years from now that I think it's going to get mainstream adoption. Yeah, it's funny, your target analogy. I think it's like the current target analogy would be like, okay, right now you, you walk into Target and they say, okay, time to pay. Put your credit card in. Now you're vaguely aware of the fact that like, okay, I could put my credit card in and then Target could get hacked. And that might put me in some jeopardy. Or, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe someone's got a, something in the scanner that's gonna, you know, the strip reader that's gonna somehow do it. You, you know, there's some small risk of that, but it doesn't overwhelm you. Whereas Web3 is almost like, the current process is basically saying, okay, you're in line at Target. They're saying, okay, go ahead, put your credit card in. Everyone in line behind you is yelling, I don't know if I, it, I last time I did that, I got, you know, they took all my money. Right. They took all my money. And it looks like, you know, you go to put your card in and there's like, and then someone's saying, make sure, there's three readers in front of you, make sure you pick the right one because two of them are fake. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's so insane if you think about it. But you, you do become, what's a really weird thing I think is like you become comfortable with the uncertainty, which then in a weird way almost makes you, like more risk prone, That's right? You know, it's like it's just now I see an email that says, "Hey, you know, this 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 thing got hacked. Your information might have been, you know, compromised." It's like, okay, well, I got that. I get those emails every. You know, it's like it's just such a weird. Uh, you're like, well, you think that's risky? Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm doing over here. So it's I, funny. I love the way you describe that, Nick. I mean, you're exactly right about the multiple readers. Don't use those. I mean, this is exactly the the the, the Web three space right now, and it is so frustrating. And you're right. It, it does make you a little more uh, um, uh, prone to, I mean, it, it, it makes you a little more risky because you're like, oh yeah, this is how it works, right? This is how I expect things to work. And next thing you know, you're you're losing everything. Yeah. Yeah. You're either more risky or you're just completely paralyzed That's and, right. and do nothing. Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, I want to do a bonus, uh, bonus question for those listeners that have uh, stuck with us throughout the entire the entire show. You referenced early on Tony Fidel, right? He had uh, Real Networks had had first kind of dibs. I think it was on the iPod and and, right. and didn't capitalize on that. And then and then Apple, uh, he left Apple and was able to do that. 
what advice do you would you give to um, you know CEOs, managers, entrepreneurs, whatever, on you know seeing you know, you've got you've got you've got great people, right? You want them you want them focused on what they're doing, but and you don't want them distracted, um, but you also don't want to miss out on you know having that talent around you and, and and having those those great ideas. I was watching a show. It's not just in tech, you know. I was watching a show. I think it's called The Bear. It was some show about a restaurant on yeah on Hulu, right? And and there's a guy in the back, you know, pastry chef, and all of a sudden he's just fascinated by making donuts, right? And he's trying to recreate all these uh, these these things, and and they just want him to make chocolate cake. They're they're they come to a point where they're they're encouraging him to dabble. Hey, in your free time, yeah, dabble. Make them, you know, yeah. If you can learn to make donuts or you want to make you know incredible pastries, do it. But then they get really busy, and when they get really busy. The guy's now a little confused on his role, right? Because he's like, what an awesome workplace. Like, I've got my traditional job, but they encourage me to pursue donuts um, in my in my spare time. Well, eventually the company gets busy enough. There is no spare time. And so now, eventually what happens in that in that show is, you know, they're yelling at him like, make the chocolate cake. But he's just sitting here making this donut. <laughs> he walks out, right? Because he feels like, uh, you know, his creativity has been taken away. Everything goes wrong. They don't have the chocolate cake. And after he leaves, they they go and taste one of his donuts and realize it's it's magical. At least that was, <laughs> you know, right? And so, you know, it, it was the it was the worst case scenario, which sounds like happens a lot in tech. And there's that balance though, because you know, at the end of the day, hey, we we need chocolate cake. If you're if you're making too many donuts, we're not we're not going to do it. What advice would you give to um, to entrepreneurs on on creating that culture? Um, of people being empowered to be creative and and explore, but also trying to keep you know get all the work done. Yeah, I, I, it, it's a it, it's definitely a hard problem, right? It's one of these things that the the analogy I've always I've always used is I want to hire people that are always learning, right? I've I want I want to bring in people. You know, I, I have friends that I went to high school with that when I asked them about new music, Post Malone, or someone like that, they're like. I haven't listened to new music since I turned 30, right? I'm, I'm, I'm done learning at that point. And that just kind of blows my mind. I, I, I don't want to work with people like that, right? People that are so set in their ways that they're not willing to try new music, try new programming languages, try this new fancy thing called blockchain, right? To me, I want people that are always learning. I have this quest for knowledge that that runs deep. You know, you, you were talking about early on about, about programming um, and, and those who, who dug in. I was one of those guys that dug in. I, I wanted to learn how to make bread from scratch. I, w- I wanted to learn to make cheese from scratch. I do all of that because I just have this quest and this thirst for knowledge. And those are the kind of people I want to hire, right? I want to, as CEOs should all be like this. And they should all, I often say that you got to train like, like, uh, um, like athletes, right? When, when uh, Steph Curry or, or, or Jaden, uh, 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 Jalen Brown, go off and uh, um, they're done with their uh, their work day, they don't go home and sit on the TV and eat macaroni and cheese, right? They continue training. They continue learning. They're looking at game films. They're, they're out practicing. I want my engineers, I want my whole organization to be that, right? In the evening, come on, continue doing something that's going to make you more valuable to the organization. Train like athletes. Because while we're not technically technically athletes, we've got to train like them. And part of that is learning new technologies. And so for me, a good, competent CEO, uh, like Rob Glazer from Real Networks, I'm, I know him well, uh, if he had given uh, Tony Fidel a little more rope, a little more slack, and saw his vision and, and actually 
dug into the future and, and just started looking at these things, I think we'd be there'd be a different company that it would have created the iPod. Um, I think, but um, but too many times people just don't see the future. I'll, I'll be honest. You know, when I, I was set in my ways in ninety three, ninety four. When a, a friend tried to get me to go work for uh, for this uh, Clark Communications, which became Netscape, and I just didn't see the future of the web. I looked at it. And I was like, this is lame. And uh, and I was eating my words uh, just a year later when I started seeing some of the impact of it. And the graph, it wasn't graphic heavy or anything at that time. But the idea that it was like bulletin board systems back in the day where I could I could go to a website that I knew was on somebody's machine in their house. And that to me was one of the coolest things ever. So I never wanted to, to, to think I knew it all um, ever again after I missed that boat, right? Or early on. And I wanted to see, I don't want to see the waves coming. So I'm always looking to the future. And I think every CEO needs to do that. It's hard work. It's I'm always reading. I'm always watching YouTube videos and trying to educate myself, but that's what people need to do to be able to support that. Now, on the other hand, uh, look, I think organizations should have development teams and should have R&D organizations. I'm a big believer in that. It's hard to do with a startup. But look, my CTO, I just had a conversation with him. He's mired down in, in development work that he's not able to do the big brain thinking. And I just literally had this conversation with him yesterday. And for me, I need to, I need to solve that problem. I need to bring in some more engineering talent so he can do the big brain thinking and start working on the next gen stuff. Because, uh, if you're not working on the next gen stuff, you're already behind. And so for me, we need to, uh, we need to support our, our, our big brain thinkers, the folks like Tony Fidel and, uh, and make sure that they have the resources they need to be able to, to pave the future because otherwise we're just going to be behind. I think that's a great, uh, a great answer and great advice. I was going through a little bit of an, uh, emotional crisis listening to that because for a second I was thinking hold on a second if I'm Steph, if I'm trying to be like Steph Curry in my in my field and I just admitted that I'm on the couch watching the bear um, <laughs> you know I this is this is not what I'm supposed to be doing but then I kind of brought it back in my own mind and thought no but listen didn't you know the reason you brought up the bear was because you managed to find That's a business right. lesson in that show and so I'm okay for okay for today I feel like if I was if I was talking to the coach I could explain the logic behind the behind that decision. So, well, I agree with that. I, I get business lessons out of everything, right? I mean, look, the, the, I remember watching Survivor back in the day and pulling away so many management techniques, like things not to do, and uh, and so I like that. I like, like I said, always be learning. It doesn't doesn't have to be an official uh, podcast or official uh, a book that you're reading. And then on the other hand, we all need downtime right? We all need some downtime. We can't be working all the time. So, uh, so I support both, right? For me, I, I, the bear is something I've been wanting to watch. So now I'm going to give it a shot. <laughs> awesome. Well, no, I really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you, uh, you coming on. You've got a fascinating uh, background and exciting, uh, exciting company moving forward. So definitely uh, excited to be able to chat with you and, and looking forward to see uh, what the future holds. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate your time. And it's been a great conversation. Awesome. Thanks. And everyone listening, I appreciate you, uh, you joining us again. If you get a chance, please rate, review, subscribe, share this podcast with any friends uh, you think it might help. And we'll see you next week. 